Hi, I'm Julie Ross. And I'm Gregory Abbey. And you're listening to the Parenting Horizons podcast. Julie is a longtime parent educator and counselor. And Greg is an actor, writer, and director, and more importantly, a parent just like you. Through conversations covering a range of different topics, challenges, and roadblocks, we hope to give you a few of Julie's tools that might just help make parenting a little bit easier. And look, nobody's perfect, and parenting is challenging to say the least. But with a few skills under our belts, we just might be able to be good enough parents and enjoy the journey and our children a little bit more in the process. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Parenting Horizons podcast. As usual, I am with my co-conspirator and partner, <laughs> Julie Ross. Julie, how, how are you feeling today? Uh, I'm feeling grateful, Greg, because I actually have COVID for the first time oh my in, gosh. in the period. Oh, my gosh. Um, but I'm grateful for science. I'm really grateful for science because I've, I've vaxxed and boosted, and I can guarantee you it would have been so much worse if, because right. uh, I'm at a vulnerable age, so they say, mm. you know. So um, you're feeling okay? I'm feeling okay. I'm a little tired, a little cough, you know. Our listeners right. might hear it in my voice that there's a little bit of raspiness, but I'm grateful. Good. How well, are you doing? thanks for showing up today. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited about today because uh, we too. are going to talk about technology today, technology and your kids which is a really big topic. Uh, but luckily, we have a expert guest with us today. Uh, we're lucky enough to have Dr. Katie Davis. Uh, Dr. Katie Davis is an associate professor at the University of Washington. She's also the director of the UW Digital Youth Lab. Um, she's published over 90 academic papers. She's the author of three different books on this subject. Uh, they are Technology's Child, Digital Media's Role in the Ages and Stages of Growing Up, Writers in the Secret Garden, Fan Fiction, Youth, and New Forms of Mentoring, and The App Generation. That's a good one. How Youth Navigate Identity, Intimacy, and Imagination in a Digital World. So, Katie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah. So before we dive into this conversation, and also I will just say, I mean, our listeners probably know this by this point, but so I have three kids, um, a daughter 14, a daughter 17, and a son who's 22. So I've had a long, confusing journey with this topic <laughs> between the phones and the streaming and the apps and the so I'm I'm coming from that perspective. It's very complicated uh to navigate. But before we dive into the conversation. Can you just tell our audience a little bit about maybe your history and how you came to where you are now with your work? Sure. So I've been studying technology and its role in kids' lives for almost 20 years now. I mm. started my career as an elementary school teacher. I taught second grade and fourth grade. And this was back in the early to mid-2000s. And even back then, it was very clear that technology was becoming really important and central both in the classroom and outside the classroom for kids. And so I went back to grad school and I was just really interested in all of the new questions this was raising for how kids learn and how they figure out who they are in the world. 
And so it's been really interesting. I guess my trajectory has followed your trajectory as a parent because I've been in this space for about 20 years now. And, you know, throughout most of that time, I've really embraced the complexity of this topic. It's there's really no one answer when people ask me, is technology good? Is it bad for kids? Should I let them have a phone? Should I not? Um, I've really leaned into the nuance and I've, I've typically given an answer like, well, it depends and all kids are different and all of this sort of thing. And then about six years ago, I became a parent myself and I realized that that complexity and that, that sort of on the one hand, on the other hand, wasn't really helping me as a parent make concrete decisions. And so it was really that tension between my role as a researcher who loves the complexity of research and my role as a parent who just wants to know how many episodes of Paw Patrol is too many for <laughs> Oliver. Um, <laughs> and I kind of brought that tension to this, uh, my newest book, Technologies Child, to figure out, is there anything concrete that we can distill from this complex landscape of research. And so that's really where I, I that's where I'm coming from in this book. And um, I'm presenting an, a framework for parents that I'm hope, hoping that it's going to be useful for them to actually make concrete decisions for their particular child, recognizing that all kids are different. That's why it is so complicated. Um, mm -hmm. But hopefully with this framework, which I think of as a two-step decision tool, it'll make life a little bit easier and clearer for parents. So let's talk about this two-step decision uh, tool, two-step decision tool. Um, I mean, obviously, you've already sort of touched on this. And one of the things I think is important in what you said, which I kind of understood even instinctively who, as someone who has three kids, it sounds like it's you have to really individuate. So it depends on your child. And then obviously it also depends on the age of your child if you're dealing with a five-year-old, a preteen, and a teenager. But could you top, talk a little bit, and I guess you can talk however, whatever age, you know, in terms of what makes sense, in terms of what is the two-step decision tool that you're talking about? Sure. So in, in the book, I'm really looking at the full arc of child development. So this applies to toddlers all the way up to college students. Um, and everything in between. And really what it is, is two questions to ask yourself when you're trying to figure out, is this particular tool or device or digital experience supporting my child's development or is it getting in the way? And the answer will be different, but the questions are the same. So the first question is, is it self-directed? And by self-directed, I mean technology experiences that really place children, no matter what age they are, in the driver's seat of their digital experiences. So for example, I, my, my child is still pretty young, Oliver. He's six now, but a few years ago, he was really into this app called Peppa's Paint Box. And it's a basic drawing app. Um, if your listeners aren't familiar with that one, I'm sure they're familiar with other drawing apps. But this is, I think, a great example of an app that lets Oliver steer the, the, where he wants to go with it. So he can draw, he opens up the app, and he's taken immediately to a blank canvas, and he can really draw whatever he wants. Um, that's very different from an experience where 
the it's not user pace, but really system pace. So if he's playing a video game where there's really just one set course and he has to collect certain numbers of um, points and badges along the way, um, he's less in control. Um, right. His and so it's less self-directed. Not to say that I don't ever let him play video ga- video games like that, but it's mm-hmm. really what you're aiming for is figuring out is my child directing the action here or are they being directed by the by the technology and the way it's designed so that's really key and you can apply it to any age so if you're thinking okay is what about teens what is my teen experiencing a self-directed um, experience on social media, you can think, well, are they, are they expressing themselves in a way that feels empowering? Um, mm-hmm. Or are they comparing themselves to the images that they're seeing on social media? Or are they feeling exclu- excluded from a peer group? Um, those are signs that they may not feel like they're really in control and in the driver's seat. Yeah. Can I ask you a question, Julie? Because I think that's important this idea I'm, you know, and as you're talking, I keep thinking of my own kids because some kids, you know, some teen, let's just say teen girls maybe use Instagram and it is empowering and some teen girls use it and they feel terrible about themselves and they have esteem issues. But the divide might be as a parent, you're not sure what, I mean, sometimes maybe you could tell, but there's other times you can't. So I guess, Julie, the question that occurs to me is how do you find out what's occurring if it's not readily available, like on paper, essentially, like you can tell like, oh, they seem they're spending a lot of time on TikTok or Instagram and they're depressed. Like, is this about checking in with them about their experiences? Uh, I think, you know, uh, that's a very good point, Greg, that this idea of checking in with them and having some knowledge like Katie gives in her book about the different kinds of experiences that different platforms provide or don't provide. Our listeners will know that I'm a huge fan of communication and keeping the channels of communication open, no matter what your child's age is, because that allows you to have a dialogue with a kid. If you see that they're feeling, you know, that if their self-esteem is wobbling, if you, if you, however, if you have come in and professed uh, how horrible technology is and that it's, you know, it's a demon and no one should have technology, your child's not going to open up to you about what their experience is. You will have no input whatsoever into helping them make good choices or safe choices about the kind of media or social media that they're using. So it has to be, I believe, it has to be an informed parental perspective. And again, I think Katie's book does an excellent job of of informing parents of kind of what they should look for. Um, An informed parenting perspective and a non-judgmental attitude about you know about what the kids are doing. Katie, you if you don't mind, you could give a great example in the book of the dad who went to his kids' middle school dance and he and he was like, they're all playing on their phone. Would you mind just reiterating that for our listeners? Because I think oh, it's a absolutely. great absolutely. Yes. No, it, I think that's such a great um example. So one of the dads that we we in one study we interviewed a bunch of parents and a bunch of 
15 separately about their experiences with technology. And to your point, Julie, of, you know, not starting the conversation by saying, oh, this is such a waste of time, but actually trying to find some common ground. Because what we found within that study is that the way teens and parents talk about their own technology use is very similar. They have similar struggles. It might play out the specifics differently, but they're very similar. But this particular dad, he um, was volunteering at his daughter's middle school dance and he noticed that, um, well, he helped them set up. He helped them set up. And then when he asked his daughter what they had done, um, he was just so unimpressed that all she could um, find to say was that, oh, you know, we, we played on our phone and, you know, we were taking pictures. And he just thought, well, you know, this is they've just wasted a, a whole dance. But if he had really just started that conversation with her with a stance of curiosity and and real non-judgmental um, stance, he would have found that there was a lot going on, although he couldn't see it, there was a lot going on on those phones. Who was posing with who in the picture? Um, who was tagged in the picture? There's a lot of complicated peer dynamics that are going on. And just because parents can't exactly see or sometimes even understand what's going on um, doesn't mean that it's not important. And it doesn't mean that it's not very um, central and um, significant for teens. And some a, a way that might help your listeners think about this is, you know, we think about our own jobs and how important they are to us. And if we don't meet a deadline, it's just, you know, really important that we don't do that. Um, well, for teens, their job is to figure out who they are and and who their friends are, and they're learning some really important social skills and social dynamics. And it's even more complicated for them those th those tasks in a digital age of network technologies than it was for us. And so, I think if we approach these conversations with um, teens and really kids of any age with understanding that their job is just as important as ours. It's just a little bit different. And, and um, that might help, you know, parents and teens find common ground. Can I ask a clarifying question then as you're talking? Um, so it seems kind of what you're saying is that this, in this um, generation, I mean, I'm just thinking about my own teenage daughters, that they're using social media as a way of socializing. Is, is that what you're kind of saying with that description of the dance that the father actually missed as opposed to him thinking like, oh, my God, they just sat around on their phones the whole time. Are you saying that these days that's a way that kids are are are, are learning social cues and how to socialize in a way? I mean, obviously, there's oh, other social. OK, can you speak to that? a yeah. little bit? So, you know, they're learning um, <laughs> The, the, it's sort of, you know, these two dimensions of social interaction that are going on at the same time. And they're very much intertwined, the offline interactions and the online. And there's, you know, often teens are not making a distinction, but it's pretty profound when you see how they navigate both of these dimensions um, at the same time. And they're absolutely learning important social skills as they're engaging in um, social media technologies, you know, they're 
and and a lot of that is being shaped by the design of the technology itself. That's one thing that I really underscore throughout the book is the way these technologies are designed is really going to shape what's possible to do with them. And then the the normal practices and cultures that arise on these different platforms. So for instance, if you take Snapchat, you might have heard of snap streaks where um, two individuals are, two friends are exchanging snaps. And that can actually be very stressful if you break a snap streak and teens go to a lot of great measures to try and maintain their snap streaks, even when they're not with their phones and they might get someone else to send messages for them. Snap maps that show you where your friends are physically, that can be really loaded. If if you find that your friends are gathered in a place where you aren't, that can be, you know, feel really distressing that you're being excluded. Um, and that's really the design. That's a particular feature that Snapchat introduced into their platform. And that has a direct effect on how peers interact with each other and and the feelings that result. Yeah, my daughter, especially my 14-year-old, uses that one a lot. I'm wondering then as a parent, and maybe you both can speak to this, then because it's sort of a it's a private experience a bit, because they have their own phones and they're you're obviously not over the, their shoulder every second. So I guess what would your advice be around a parent's participation in that process? Is it hands-off? Is it what Julie talked about in terms of just keeping an opening lines of communication going on, keeping on an eye on your kid emotionally? Uh, you know, because you're talking about they're learning all these cues. Is that part of growing up is like they make mistakes on their own and they kind of figure out what's the parent's contribution in those situations? Well, I so this really comes to the second step of the two-step decision tool, and that's community support. And parents are really central in providing their children with support surrounding their digital experience. And I think it might be helpful to th- for parents to think about the different roles that they can take on as a parent. It's not just simply you can or can't do this. Um, a, a conversation partner is another role. Um, a collaborator figuring out strategies together to um, manage the stress. And so I think, you know, and it's going to be different for different children. When you're talking younger adolescents, maybe 13, 14, they may need some more um, supports than adolescents who are 17, 18. And so I think of it, you know, I think of an analogy like learning to ride a bike. Um, most parents don't just put their children on a two-wheel bike and just have them go off on their own. Usually there's some sort of support like training wheels or um, they're helping to hold them. So starting off with some supports uh, until they kind of get the hang of it and then gradually um, taking off the training wheels, I think that's one way to think about how to support your children with social media. And so when my son enters into early adolescence, I fully intend to, whether he likes it or not, engage him in a lot of these conversations. I'm not just going to expect that because he knows technically how to use a phone, that he really understands the social nuance or social dynamics associated with peer interaction through networked technologies. And I think that's where parents have a really important role to play. They have a lot of wisdom to share, even if they may not be as technologically savvy as their kids. 
Um, but when it comes to peer interaction, they do have a lot of experience that they can share. And I think that's really important uh, for them to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering too, Katie, if you can kind of speak to the idea of parents modeling the use of technology to their children. Because, you know, one thing I hear a lot about in my practice is, you know, from parents who say, my kid, you know, will not come to the dinner table or whatever without their phone. And they're on their phone the whole time when it could be conversation. And my question is always, well, do the adults come to the table with their phones? And the answer is usually yes. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And I feel like, you know, I feel like I would love for you to talk about kind of the the impact that that has on kids when parents are coming and being distracted by their phone. I think you have a word for it. Some, some distracting word, a word about the distractibility. I mean, I think you talk about mofophobia, right? Is that right? Oh, right. <laughs> Mobile That's right. Phone. The fear of not having your phone with you. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> Ex- exactly. And is it techno... Uh, techno technoference yeah that's right okay yeah. so if you could right. speak to yeah, that yeah there's a, a group of scholars yeah there's some researchers who have coined this term technoference and it's this idea i mean it 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 kind of is um self-explanatory in a way but this idea that the technology is interfering with um offline interactions and sometimes mm-hmm. that's between two couples um uh, to people in a in a relationship, sometimes it's between parents and their children, and that's really the way I speak about it in the book. Is how sometimes parents' technology use will come in the way um, of their interactions with their children, and so there's some research showing that for young children, when parents are really distracted, and this is not just occasional glances at their phone, which research has shown is just you know, that's benign. It's it's not going to do any damage. But if it's sustained distraction, um, that can start to interfere with the way parents are responding to their children's bids for attention. And if you think about those early years, such an important part of development is forming a secure attachment with a primary caregiver. And if that attachment is being um, interfered with by technology, the parent isn't there or whatever, whichever caregiver is on hand, they're not available to really pick up on those cues and respond to the cues of children. And that can get in, start to get into the way of um, those important attachment relationships. So yes, it's really important for parents to look inward and observe their own relationship to technology. And what we found in our discussions with parents and my experience as a parent myself is that it's really hard. It's really, you know, we were constantly bombarded with emails and just all these things that we're supposed to be doing. And often when we're, if we're parents of small children, sometimes we just want a lifeline to the adult world. And so it's all very understandable, but it is important to be aware. And for older kids, if you find that you're being distracted, it can be a great learning opportunity. It can be a teachable moment to say, you know what? I'm just noticing I've been completely distracted. 
let me put my phone away and let's return to what we were doing. And in that way, you're using your inevitable slip ups because they're going to happen. It's no point beating yourself up about that um, because these technologies were designed to pull our attention to them. But using those slip ups to say, you know what? And even if for older kids say, this technology, look at how this was designed. These notifications, I don't have to get notifications, but that's a design feature that they've introduced to pull me to my phone. It could be a really great teachable moment there. You know, it's interesting as you were talking, Katie, because I I suddenly had a kind of a realization that, you know, from a psychological standpoint, um, it may be that parents are using their phones uh, or technology as an avoidance strategy, avoidance of intimacy, avoidance of relationship, avoidance of communication, avoidance of feelings, you know, that, and they're just, it's the easy out that they're looking at their phones as opposed to dealing with the fact that, you know, maybe they're in a conversation with their child and they're kind of bored. I mean, they're bored, not the child. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes, honestly, some of the games that Oliver wants to play right now, it's Pokemon. And I'm honestly not that interested in Pokemon. And so sometimes (laughs) I see my eyes gravitating to my phone and just for something else that's a little bit more interesting to me. Right. Um, So it is hard to stay in the moment. And I totally empathize with parents um, who have that struggle because I certainly have that struggle but I try as much as I can to be self-aware of what I'm doing and why. I'm not perfect at it, but I think it is helpful because then I realized it's not necessarily that we're playing Pokemon, but we're doing that together. And that's that's an opportunity for me to connect with Oliver and maybe we can have a conversation that's not so Pokemon focused. Can you speak to that too, Katie, about how to use your child's current digital obsession um, as a way to connect with them. Absolutely. This can be really powerful. You know, one thing that parents have to offer their children is their deep knowledge of their children, because with that knowledge, they can really personalize the kind of support they give. And, And it's through that personalized support that children learn new skills and they develop. And so if you can at least show curiosity and an openness to learn about their current passion, um, that can open the door to so many um, connections and understandings. And so, you know, if, if it's a teen who's just really passionate about TikTok, maybe thinking, well, is it TikTok or what are they? Maybe they're learning a cooking or, you know, music or something really cool on TikTok. Maybe not, but you never know unless you ask. And so I think if you really open up to those conversations and connecting, you can learn so much about your child and then take those passions and connect to something else. So for Pokemon, I'll go back to that example because it's very big in our family right now. This has turned out to be a great opportunity for Oliver to learn to count to and to understand big numbers because he has to count to see how much damage these cards are doing and if <laughs> if there's another yeah. enough hp left on the card for his card to survive and i don't quite get it but i do understand that he's learning good math and i'm trying to lean into that and and support him in that regard yeah and right. greg didn't you make a tiktok video with one of your kids i think yes, so yes back when well, back when my teenager would t- 
would do it with me. Now she would be absolutely <laughs> mortified. But yeah, during the pandemic, Sage and I made all these TikTok dances. We made a bunch of them, actually. It was a lot of fun. And now I she's like, I would never do that again. Because <laughs> um, once in a while, I'll be like, hey, Sage, should we do another TikTok? She's like, no. Um, <laughs> what I, mean, I there love, were, there were though, things- Greg, what I love, though, Greg, about that is that it's still a fundamental and foundational part of her experience of her relationship yeah. with you as a dad. And even though she's at the age, you know, they get to the age where anything parents do is stupid and, you mm-hmm. know, embarrassing. And uh, fortunately for you, Katie Oliver isn't probably at that stage yet. But Not they, yet. Thank goodness. <laughs> but they they do. But, you know, I, I love that. I love that you did that, Greg. I love that, you know, that's part of her history with you. Yeah, I think so. And it's, and Katie's sort of, has spoken to this already, but it's also maybe about meeting her where she was like the, the horses out of the barn. Like there's no going back. Like this is a part of their life. So it's not about like, how do I get rid of this? Cause that's absurd. It's just not happening. And I don't even think I was consciously doing that. I was instinctively doing it. Like she was into TikTok, and I thought this might be a, a fun way for her, for her and I to connect. I mean, I did want to say a couple things occurred to me as you both were speaking, you know, just circling back to this idea of consciousness a little bit about the phones and technology and your own use. I read this great book recently called The Endurance Diet, which is really not a diet. It's a it's a it's a, a way of eating. And this uh, doctor interviewed all these endurance athletes and what they ate. So it's it's really about food choices. But it, there's a very big chapter on conscious eating versus mindless eating and how you and the habits that develop and how important it is. And that's just what occurred to me, Katie, as you were talking. And I try to do it myself with my own kids. And again, no one's perfect. It's it's hard to do. But I do try to you have to be conscious because otherwise you could lose 30 minutes checking your emails. And can you take a beat to say, OK, wait a second, what's going on? I mean, I will say we definitely don't do it perfect. My kids aren't great, you know, ideal with digital media, but we definitely in terms of meals or if we're together, like it's just not a time for that because it's so easy to slip off. I did want to ask just because it's, and and this is circling back to, you were talking a little bit and you have a young son, Oliver, and I'm sort of past the, that time. So how do parents determine these days? I think we gave our kids phones. We live in New York City, which is different. But I think when they started traveling by themselves a little bit, it was a way to be in touch with them. But then it's very easy to slip into the apps and you start getting pressure because, you know, Sally has this and they have this and I want this. And it's so difficult. And I guess there's probably not there's not one answer. But do you have some guidance around young kids and when and has that changed in 2023? Like when are kids getting phones these days and when do you think it's appropriate to start introducing that? And I'm sure it depends on the kids. So, yeah, I mean, this is so tricky. And this is where I it, it depends on the kid. It depends on the parent, but unfortunately it doesn't just depend on the parent because it all it's also this pull of the child's social environment. And so sometimes when a, when a certain threshold has been reached in the class of how many kids have phones, it can actually start to feel really um, ostracizing not to be connected in that way and can start to affect kids' social relationships. And so I think a lot of parents feel a huge pressure to get their kids phones. I th- I don't think that means I think there's a happy medium to be reached here. So it, I don't think that means okay, I'm going to get 
throw up my hands, you have a phone and just go at it. Because there are a lot of things that you can do between no phone and here's a phone with unfettered access. There's operating systems that are tailored specifically specifically for tweens and teens to help parents um, manage what sort of access they have. And they kind of grow with the child so that you know, as they get older and demonstrate more maturity, parents can let go of some of these controls. I think that's really useful because one one of the interesting anecdotal things that I'm finding, when I first started this research, we were interviewing teens in 2006, seven, eight, and on. And those teens are now adults. They're millennials. And a lot of them I'm hearing anecdotally reflecting and saying, you know what? Our parents had no clue what we were doing online, and we are not better for it. We wish that we had some supports. And I certainly don't blame parents back then because it was the Wild West. Parents today are a lot savvier, and there's a lot more supports, I think. And importantly, kids want support. They may not verbalize that, but I just look at my experience as an elementary school teacher. When everything was you know, very clear rules and everything was set up in an organized um, and um, expected way, you could just feel that they were calm. They knew what to do. And within that context of support, they had freedom then to really learn and engage with the material. And I think it's the same when you're parenting kids and teens. If you give them the support, um, they'll feel the comfort and um, they'll feel that ability to then explore within the bounds of that support. And what that support looks like is going to be different. And that's where it's really important to tune into your child and just try as much as you can to understand how they're using these technologies, what they might be vulnerable to, maybe Maybe they're really not sure how to interact through um, a text medium. That's a different way of talking than talking face-to-face. You can provide supports in that. Maybe your child has some vulnerability to body satisfaction or dissatisfaction, and um, you can really be on the lookout and helping them to curate their social media feeds so that they're following body-positive content and not thinspiration content, for instance. And what about... I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, Greg. Um, you go. You go first, Julie. Then I want to ask something. <laughs> this is a big one. I have like I fifty questions. I go know. Ahead. Me go too. Ahead. I have at least that many as well. <laughs> uh, so, Katie, you just said that um, there are different operating systems that grow with your child. Is that different from controls that parents put on their children's? media or phones so that they can't access X, Y, or Z? And if it is different, what are those operating systems? Well, so it's slightly different, and it's but it's the basic it's just, the idea is the, basically the same. So there's one operating system called Pinwheel. You know, they're marketing themselves as a healthy kid's phone. And really what that means mm. is you put the operating system on whichever phone you've bought that is compatible with that operating system. And with that, that operating system then allows you to control what your child can and can't do. But similarly, with when you have parent control apps, um, there are a lot, a lot out there. I think one is called. Well, I can't think of them off of my top of my head here, but they uh, they perform in the same way. So they basically allow you to have certain levels of control 
to certain apps, or if even that you can get as detailed as looking at the text messages that your child is um, sharing and the actual content. And I guess my advice around those types of parent controls, whether it's an app that you download or or an operating system, or even sometimes within a platform, such as a lot of the social media platforms now have parental control built into them. Whatever it is, I really would encourage parents not to use this as a way of spying on your kids, but as a way of entering into conversation with them and and hopefully have a dialogue about what would be appropriate to start off with as guardrails and training wheels. And then how are we going to assess along the way, whether it's time to take some of those off. Um, And I think through that process, you'll have a lot more success than just, you know, putting all of this software on and limiting your kids and having them feel like you're spying on them. That's probably not going to lead to a, a a great trusting relationship around technology use. Yeah. I just wanted to circle back just because I thought it was such an interesting point you made. I mean, one thing I'm really getting from this conversation, which I kind of knew intuitively, is that it's it's such a nuanced thing and you have to be very, I know as a parent, like you have to work at it because it's none of this is really black and white. I just thought it was really interesting the point you made about, you know, strict guidelines in terms of like, I'm not going to let my child have a phone until age 13 or they can't have this app until 15 because I've seen that happen a little bit with my some parents in my kids classes and part of me respects it and also understands it but I just thought it was interesting like if you have a class of 25 kids and they're the one kid that still doesn't have it yeah. are you willing to die on that hill because <laughs> it sounds like what you're saying is that that can almost become a detriment to that child and it doesn't mean which I also think is great it doesn't mean like okay you throw up your hands I guess I got to give in but I guess that's what you're saying is that it if you have that strict uh, you know uh, regimen about your rules around it it could potentially be a detriment to the child, depending on what's going on socially around them? Absolutely. I think it could potentially be, not for all kids, but some for sure. And so I I do think it's worth paying attention to what's going on in your child's social context. What are all the other kids doing? It doesn't mean, oh, well, if all the other kids are doing that, then you must do that as well. But maybe there's a happy medium that you can find where, okay, maybe there's a certain percentage of the kids in the class and a lot of them are your friends and they have phones. I'm not comfortable with that. So we're going to talk about the kinds of controls that we'll, I'll be putting on your phone. And maybe we'll, in the beginning, I'll, you'll give me access to your group chats, for instance, um, and go from there. And I think that's perfectly reasonable um, and one that I, I'm assuming that a lot of kids could get on board with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, it kind of comes question, back Julia, to, or do you, yeah, go ahead. Do you want, no, no. Do you, do you want to say something? Oh, I just wanted I to say, you know, it, it, you know, it, that goes back to the, the idea, you know, that we promote on this podcast all the time, which is communication dialogue around this stuff, as opposed to, as opposed to things being black and white, you know, the parents, yes or no. I mean, when kids are younger, you have to do a lot of that. But as they grow, it's really about, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what you're interested in and why are you interested in it. And let's have a conversation about, you know, the the some of the potential pitfalls, but also some of the advantages of whatever 
the platform is that they're interested in using. Absolutely. And as you said earlier, Julie, that conversation probably won't go so well if you come at it just assuming that it's a waste of time and, you know, they're not learning anything or, you know, um, they could be doing so much, something better with their time. If you instead come at it with a more open mind, um, realizing that this is something that's very important to them, I think the conversation is likely to go a lot better. Yeah. I had a question about because you meant your son's name is Oliver, correct? Mm-hmm. Is that what you yes. said? Yes. Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned that you talked about something that's self-directed and how that's an important nuance to this. Like what kind of technology is going on? And you mentioned this app where he gets to draw and he you know, he's doing that. What about the veg out, which we all need? You know, my wife and Absolutely. I watch Netflix at night and you know, obviously video games. You could we could probably do a whole episode on video games, you know, how big that is. One of my kids likes to sit in the dark and scroll through TikTok on her phone. So there's part of it that we all need that. But as a parent, is it the same thing in terms of communication? When is too much too much? And when is it's okay to let them have a little bit of that, I'm assuming, of course? Absolutely. So actually, Oliver was just home yesterday sick. And, you know, there are no no rules when it comes to being sick. And especially since I still had to work. So he watched a lot of Netflix yesterday. And that's totally fine. You know, same thing when we're on an airplane. And I think, and even just a regular day, there's time to just cool out on the couch and watch a show or two. But if it becomes the show or two stretches out into three, four, five, six and on, and it starts to displace other meaningful experiences, um, that's when you start to think maybe something is a little out of whack with the balance. And so that's why I think keeping in mind you know, is this experience with technology, especially if it's something that your child is doing for an extended period of time where they could um, conceivably be doing other things, if you're thinking, well, is should they be doing something else or should is it okay for them to be doing this? That's when these questions of, is it self-directed? Is it community supported? Am I paying attention? Are other people engaging with them? Um, are they experiencing some sort of community with their experience or is it a completely sealed off experience? Those questions, I think, can be really useful for that extended kind of uh, technology experience. And and also just as an indicator of if you notice that your child, you know, seems kind of agitated or even mm-hmm. depressed after uh, a session on TikTok or um, Snapchat, maybe thinking, well, maybe they, you know, something happened where they weren't really feeling a lot of agency, like where maybe something happened with their peers or they saw something that made them feel bad about themselves that's an indication that that experience wasn't one where they were in the driver's seat and they were feeling agency. And so that's something to pursue with them through conversation. So I I wanted to ask if you could go into a little bit more detail about what you mean by community supported. Because I think self-directed is, you know, probably a little self-evident, but community supported, <laughs> what, is that, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so community supported can mean a lot of different things. It's basically the kind of support that a child is experiencing for their digital ex- digital interaction. So that community support can sometimes happen surrounding the technology experience. So if I think, and this is particularly true for little kids, where maybe they're in, they're 
using a literacy app or even if they're watching a show on Netflix, that can actually turn into just vegging out watching a show on Netflix could turn into a learning experience if a parent or other adult or sibling is on hand to ask them questions about the the show and get them to relay the story that could actually increase their storytelling skills. Uh, you can connect it to something else in their experience. And so in that way, you're extending the learning um, potential of that digital interaction through the support you're providing. So that's one example where community support can often come in the family context surrounding the experience. It can also come in the digital experience itself. So if you're thinking about older kids, teens, and their participation in online communities. Um, a lot of teens experience validation for the identities they're exploring online through online communities. And in fact, that was a real theme in my second book about fan fiction. A lot of youth, especially when they're exploring marginalized identities, um, in particular LGBTQ plus identities, a lot of them find a sense of community in online platforms. And it, it happens that a lot of them revolve around some form of fandom or fan fiction writing. Um, and so that in, that's an example where the community is being found within the digital experience. And so those are just two examples. Another important thing to keep in mind, I think, is that the community is not just individuals. It's also what's going on in society. So the kinds of policies that are being made around technology and its relationship to kids, um, the decisions that platforms make about the kinds of the supports and moderation that they're going to put in place on their platforms, that's also a form of community support, or in some cases, and unfortunately, lack, lack of, of community yeah. support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So as we wrap up, I just have a couple of more. You talk about asking parents, you urge parents to embrace the good enough principle of digital parenting. What is that? What does that mean? Yeah. So this is the recognition that I always knew, but really became clear for me when I became a parent that being a parent in the 21st century, and it just seems every decade becomes even more so, it's extremely guilt-ridden. There's huge high expectations associated with making sure you're setting your kid up for success. And um, that that pressure and that guilt extends to technology use. And so um, when I'm talking about the good enough digital parent, I'm drawing on a concept that actually comes pre-digital from the twentieth mid-20th century. There's this pediatrician named Donald Winnicott, and he wrote about the good enough mother. And so I've updated that concept for the 21st century and talk about the good enough parent. And basically, the Winnicott's idea was that parents are actually doing their children a disservice when they're on hand all the time to respond to every bid for that their child makes for their attention. So if they're always there to help them figure out a difficult homework problem or to solve um, a, a social um, a, a challenge with a friend, for instance, or if they're bored and the parent's always there to give them another activity to do, then the child is not going to build up any sort of inner resilience. They're not going to learn how to navigate tricky social situations 
or regulate their own emotions or figure out how to get themselves on board. And so the idea is to not just settle for this sort of imperfection, but embrace it and say, this is a way to develop my child's resilience and also to keep sane as a parent, because there's no way that you can always be on hand to um, respond to every bid for attention. Um, and then in the digital context, a good enough digital parent recognizes right from the start that they are not going to be perfect at this because technologies are always changing and it's really impossible to keep up with them all. There are wonderful resources out there like Common Sense Media, and they do reviews on every sort of technology. And I use that, but honestly, I don't have time to read every single review before I allow Oliver to do or not to do some tech thing. And so good enough digital parents do their best to read reviews, to steer their children toward self-directed, community-supported digital experiences. But they recognize that not every experience will be as self-directed and community-supported probably as they want it to be. But importantly, they observe their child, they observe themselves, and they adjust accordingly based on what they see as the interaction taking place between the child and the technology. And then when it comes to their own tech use, good enough digital parents, they know that occasionally being distracted by a screen or other device is okay. It's not going to totally mess up their relationship with their child. But at the same time, they do try to keep their tech use to a minimum. And if they do find that they slip up sometimes, they use that as a teachable moment. So basically, the idea is that to give yourself a break as a parent, but still trying to tune in and almost be like um, a, a scientist yourself and, and really observe carefully, take note of what you and your child are doing with technology, and then adjust as, as you see fit. Julie was nodding her head almost throughout everything you were saying because you were, you were hitting on like 50,000 of her <laughs> key philosophies. But Julie, did you want to... Did you want to add anything? I know you talk about the 70-30 rule, and I think right. during the pandemic it was keep them alive. Yes. But talk a, li- <laughs> talk a little bit about uh, the 70-30 se- the rule, just because you kept nodding your head. I think she was yeah. She's yeah. Speaking, speaking your truth a little uh, bit. Absolutely. And so I have what I call my 70-30 rule in parenting, which is you really only have to get it right 70% of the time. There's a 30% margin for error and everybody will still be okay. And that's a C minus. You only have to be good enough. You don't have to be, you know, C minus is fine. And over the years, I've discovered that the 30%, right, is actually as as important as the the 70% because you're, you know, what you said, Katie, was, you know, that, that kids don't develop resiliency if the parents are on top of them all the time, making the road smooth, you know, making the journey smooth. We we do need to, as parents, be able to lose our tempers. Like kid, you know, I mean, from time to time, no more than 30% of the time and never as a technique to control a child, but lose our tempers or you know, or in the case of technology, slip up. It, it is okay. So, you know, I love that. I mean, then that's why I was like, 
nodding my head like <laughs> like one of those bobblehead toys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I think that the idea is that good enough is actually great and to really yes. embrace that. Yeah. Yes. Right. So this has been amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a ton. I'm I'm wondering, I, I usually do this with uh, all of our guests and, and you kind of covered so much, but if parents have listened to this whole conversation, I mean, if there was, if there was one thing in particular you would have parents walk away with to maybe keep top of mind in terms of technology, Katie, what, what would it be? I think really um, keeping in mind the two-step decision tool, because I really, as soon as I came up with it during my writing of the book, I started to use it every day with Oliver. So just, it, it is a helpful way to focus in on, you know, what is actually going on with your child's technology use. So asking, is it self-directed? Is it community supported? I think can go a long way. And then just, you know, embracing the good enough digital parent principle and and recognize that good enough is great. I agree. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, that's a great way to end. Again, our guest today is uh, Dr. Katie Davis. If you want to learn more about her work, you she has a website. It's katiedavisresearch.com. She's also written several books, which you can find. The one we kind of touched on the most today is called Technology's Child, Digital Media's Role in the Ages and Stages of Growing Up. Katie, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank, thank you so, you so much, much if- Katie. If your um, listeners are interested, if they go to my website, they can sign up for my um, newsletter, which I which is geared towards parents and making good decisions around technology use. That's that's great. great. Again, I'm I'm going to give the website one more time, and we'll put it in the show notes. It's Katie K I K A T I E Davis Research Katie Davis Research dot com. So thanks, Katie. We really great. appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Parenting Horizons podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share with your family and friends. And if you'd like to hear more about Julie's work, join one of her parenting groups, or see about individual counseling, please visit ParentingHorizons.com. Or you can email Julie at julie.ross at ParentingHorizons.com. We'll see you next time.